Welcome to the Beer Before Glory podcast. My name is Justin Crosley. And I'm Matt Brennelson. And we are your hosts in this all new podcast series, Beer Before Glory. Uh, Our goal is to dive deep into craft beer. um, And we're going to do it with our friends and experts and people that we admire in the craft beer industry. And our first guest today are no exception at all to that criteria. Uh, Jeremy Marshall from Lagunitas Brewing Company. Welcome, Jeremy. What's happening, gentlemen? Yeah, Jeremy's a, a, just a fantastic brewer that I've known for a long time, so I'm, I'm just excited to have you here. And Evan Price from Green Cheek down in Orange, California. Welcome, Evan. Woo! <laughs> yeah, Evan, just as excited as I am, um, which is great. Uh, my only complaint about Evan is that I don't get to have his beer enough, to be honest with oh, you. Oh, <laughs> man, yeah, yeah. We got to change that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I'm up here in Northern California, so uh, we definitely have to fix that. Every time I do get to try your beer at different festivals, and of course, I've had you on the show before in, in some of your past lives as a brewer, um, I, I just really enjoy it. And what was really cool is we had the opportunity to introduce these two guys together. Apparently, they have not met. I don't know how that's possible. <laughs> right. Two great brewers. So that's a fun, uh, fun part for us. So uh, just briefly, the Beer Before Glory podcast uh, kind of started as this idea. Um, Matt and I, over the years, uh, got to collaborate and work together at the Firestone Walker Invitational Beer Festival, among other things. Um, But at that festival, we created the Behind the Beer stage, um, where I was invited to interview uh, brewers just like this and uh, and just talk about different topics and really kind of dive deep for about an hour-long format. Um, We did that for for years. And of course, uh, right now, uh, festivals and events are uh, on hiatus um, for the time being. But I thought, you know, it's really something that we can still do. And, and not only then would I get to kind of moderate these uh, professionals that I love to listen to, but Matt would get to do what he likes to do anyway, which is hang out with brewers and talk about beer. Um, so that's kind of what happened, right, Matt? We just thought, let's, why don't we just do this as a podcast? Yeah, and I, I never got to enjoy it as much as I should at the Invitational because I'm playing host. But both of you guys have been there. So, I mean, you've seen it. The Invitational yeah. is just kind of a blur. It's like, it's like a wedding every year for me. It's like, <laughs> yeah. I show up and then I wake up and they're gone. And I can't remember if I got to talk to everybody and I felt like I only spent a moment with everybody. So this is a little slower pace and we'll, we'll, we'll get to ask all the questions we wanted to ask. Right. And so for those of you viewing and listening over the course of, of several episodes, it's kind of just a longer version of, of what Matt and I like to do, which is talk to Talk to brewers and learn more about craft beer. So today's topic is on the evolution of the IPA. And I'm not going to lie, we kind of chose IPA because it's obviously pretty attention grabbing for a first podcast. Um, But it's also something that gives us uh, a lot to talk about and is near and dear to, to all of these brewers' hearts. And um, it's, it's an everlasting beer style. And we thought we'd, you know, we're not here to necessarily give you the history of the IPA, which is long and, and fascinating. In fact, a mutual friend of ours, Mitch Steele, wrote the book on IPA. And I would, uh, you know, free plug for Mitch. I'd, I'd go buy that if you want to learn the whole history of the IPA. But we just wanted to talk about kind of how it's evolved. And because it's, it's still such an exciting style, especially right now, what's happening with it. And, and Hayes and, and gosh, the, even the debate between West Coast and Hayes is a lot of fun for me. Um, so that's why we, we, we chose this topic. Um, 
a little bit about Jeremy, you know, I'll let him kind of speak for, for his, his position, but as the brewmaster of Lagunitas, Matt and I were kind of talking about this earlier and we kind of thought, wow, Jeremy's probably brewed more IPA, you know, per, by barrel than any brewer on the planet ever. Do you think that's about right, Jeremy, with Lagunitas IPA being so popular? Well, if you're only looking at the Lagunitas umbrella, if I have any brewers watching, they'll be like, that guy doesn't brew shit anymore. <laughs> I see. <laughs> I see. But yeah, by, by brewery name, uh, we're still the reigning champion of uh, top skew. Uh, started, you know, state of California, then it was country, and then uh, uh, globally, I believe, if you're just going by the numbers. Yeah. So it's kind of a good starting point if we're talking about the evolution, too. It, when did Lagunitas IPA first hit the market? Do you know that? Yeah, uh, around 1995 when I was in high school and uh, I don't know what Evan was up to, but uh, I oh, think I'm... Uh, I was 10. Oh, wait, no, 12. 12. <laughs> I was 12 in 95. Okay. Yeah, I was 12. yeah. So, so hopefully Evan was not drinking the Lagunitas IPA in 1995. No, or... crushing it, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, back then, um, so, you know, Lagunitas was founded by uh, truly an industry maverick, only often compared uh, out there to Larry Bell is the only other person that kind of comes up in terms of just being a, a very different thinker. I like to say it was, looking back, it was like working for, a mix of, of Elon Musk and Frank Zappa combined put together nice. into this. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 So, so you can imagine it was, it was fun when it was fun, but it was also intense. Sure. And, uh, and when, when we decided to, when Tony decided, cause this was before me, um, uh, that IPA was going to be the, the thing that we were going to go after. Cause of course the, the brewery we all emulated at the time uh, was Sierra Nevada. So it was all about pale ales. Sure. Which is an interesting tie-in to the history of the of the of, of the Mitch Steele history of IPA. You know that it started as just a pale ale, but uh, in 1995, it it was like we're gonna make this style and we're gonna we're gonna add all these BUs, huge one. You know, you had a bitterness edition, a uh, middle edition, a uh, whirlpool edition, and then you dry hopped with. Cascade and Centennial, like cutting edge stuff, you know, and I think right. Anchor, Anchor Liberty Ale was the first thing that really put like, like dry hopping with Cascade, like on our, our palette maps. Uh, but then a lot of people were naysayers. They said, oh, you, you, you work for IPA. No one wants to drink that bitter stuff. You know, why don't you make an amber or a, a nice Pilsner or... You know, I remember beer, the beer landscape was very different back then, you know? Yeah, yeah. Very different. It, and, it was, so you were, you were dry hopping that beer from day one? From day one, the uh, OG dry hop was Centennial and Cascade. And then as it evolved, it picked up Chinook and, and uh, uh, Simcoe was kind of, the, you know, the game changer. Uh, obviously, with uh, Vinny being a big, big part of a, a champion behind that, along with... Um, uh, our, uh, Jason Peralt and our friends at Yakima Chief and, you know, uh, pe people that just believed in that hop when no one else would. Yeah. Um, you know, Simcoe to me was the, the game changing moment of IPA, but we just skipped so much 
IPA history just then. Well, and I was, <laughs> okay. was going to take a step back because you mentioned Larry Bell and that's where I cut my teeth was I was, you know, I went to high school and later college in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And Larry Bell was, yeah, the Tony of that, that region and mm-hmm. equally Centennial. out there and brilliant at the same time. Yeah. And two hearted uh, was, and I, I, I don't know for sure if the very first batch was dry hop, but I think it was, and it was Centennial. Yeah. Hmm. And yep. two hearted, by the way, still every year gets ranked in the, in the top two to three IPAs uh, in the country. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's up there. It, it's yeah, um, uh, which is a testament, I, I think, to to the beer, to the recipe, to the beer, and and to the style. You know, people still love a broad spectrum of IPAs, uh, which is what I want to talk about is how it's a broad spectrum. And by the way, Jeremy, uh, um, you know, Matt, I'm going to steal Matt's thunder just a little bit here. I, I like that you mentioned that you added additional hops to the to Lagunitas IPA as the years gone on, because as we're discussing this evolution of the IPA, these kind of throwbacks they're still evolving too, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, so, when we, yeah, we, we did Can You Brew It, Lagunitas IPA Brewing Network from Pacheco yeah, yeah. back in those days, uh, <laughs> you know, live from out. your garage. And, you know, we gave out a recipe. That was a, that was a moment in time. There, there's, there's, there's new malts, there's new hops. It's a new world out there, right? Yeah. See, I love that. And I like, and I think that consumers should know that they, you know, people just might go, Oh, well it's, it's Lagunitas IPA. I've had that. Mm, I bet you haven't had it. (laughs) Jeremy, what did that original recipe look like for Lagunitas IPA and, you know, where it continued to move, like dry hop amount or, you know, amount of crystal malt? Like, I'm super curious on this, like, original Lagunitas IPA and then drinking it as, you know, a drinker now within the last five years, I feel like I'm very familiar with that beer. Right. Uh, Well, that's that's an interesting question um, because... It, it was really different. It used to be very chewy. Um, so for the homebrewers that are listening right now, the mash temperature for that beer used to be 160, which would be unheard yes. of by today's <laughs> standards. Yeah, we, we had to, to strike it 160. We had to use uh, ungodly uh, temperatures of, of hot liquor. And oh, yeah. it, was, uh, it was very high amount of uh, English crystal. Um, and, uh, around, uh, 60 lava bond, uh, always had about, uh, six to 8% Munich malt. Uh, Tony was very much into malted wheat. Um, you know, this is before the crusade against gluten and the crusade against, against grain and the whole, you know, bread makes you fat movement, uh, which I don't subscribe to cause I love bread and liquid bread. So, but there was always about a uh, 10 to 15% wheat. Um, and then the, the hop additions in the kettle were massive. It always started with a big addition of Aroika, which got uh, pulled out of the ground for poor agronomics in the 90s. And we phased that out and we phased in Horizon. Kind of same story with Horizon. It was pulled out of the ground. So if you look nowadays, it's, it's more of a CTZ kind of situation. Uh, but that was also a, a big part of, uh, you know, the dry hopping as well. Uh, middle edition was Willamette, which is like a U.S. Fuggle, a hop that's not very interesting uh, to very many people these days, uh, a triploid that's more or less going away, very poor yield, all that kind of stuff. Uh, big Cascade, Whirlpool edition. Uh, dry hop, uh, I want to say when I started, I'm remembering climbing to the top of a 120-barrel tank 
and in, in a in a very uh, non OSHA friendly manner at the time, you know, like yeah, super hanging safe. to the side of a ladder with my bucket, my yep. my spray bottle, and my you know sweating with my safety glasses on, you know, every everything wrong. And uh, you I, I would have I would like do... a half inch port on the top, you know, well, of course, hop it in. You're putting one pellet in at a time. Always. Yeah. Well, well, let let us not forget the the denucleation, right? When you pour a scoop in and the hot pellets levitate because you're knocking CO2 out. That's that's the moment when, you know, shove that thing over and put the PRV back on. It's about to blow. It's like a whale, man. You're you're sitting on top of a whale. Yeah. We all have a story about that. Matt and I have compared stories and we've all got a picture somewhere. But uh, it was it was one box of Centennial and one box of Cascade. Uh, which would be about, um, that'd be about 40 kilos. Sorry, I've gone full metric lately. That's 88 pounds uh, in a hundred. And so the, the, it wasn't quite to that magical uh, kind of like early 2000 dry hopping rate that began to define an IPA of a pound per barrel, mm. which, you know, at some point as things evolved, uh, it became two pounds per barrel. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. right. Sure. Which, which is like the bottom standard, right? The two, the oh, two pounds, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, two pounds is boring. <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a similar story because when we started dry hopping here, and it was, you know, 200 barrel tank, but probably about as high, like dangerously high in the air, 25, 30 feet. And we had nothing that would, no ladder. And, the, and so we had a forklift that would fit between the tanks. I would go, I would have to go find a pallet of malt because oh. the forklift three mast stuff wasn't quite high enough to crawl to the top of the tank. So I spacer. Up a pallet of malt. You got a spacer. But yeah. I learned to put a, some plastic over it because after a few eruptions of beer and you wrecked a uh. pallet of malt, you learn to cover it. And then I take the buckets of hops and some sanitizer because that was important to kind of clean and then go up there and then scale to the top and clamp onto something. And then I had like a funnel that was like, you know, you got at the gas station to put your oil into the engine and, and then, yeah, yeah, pitcher, pitcher, pitcher. Oh, and then the tank would start to shake. You're like, oh, God, yes. here we go. Hand <laughs> over the top for a little while. Wow. Dry hopping was truly exciting. We sound like a couple old men back in my day. <laughs> I have like such a similar story at a brewery that I worked at where it was just like, you know, older tanks without any kind of newer, uh, you know, larger dry hop port and everything else. And I'm just, um, I'm sitting directly on top of the tank with a, fu- with a funnel straight from a gas station, literally exactly the same thing. And I'm adding it. It's at, that, it's at the end of my day. And then all of a sudden it erupts it and I am sitting there on the top of the tank trying to one, save my life, but then also save the beer. And I just get co- completely covered with beer. And then I have to drive home uh, completely soaked with beer, but uh, right. telling the police Tell officer, I over. swear I didn't have a drink. I died. No, yeah. Yeah. Listen, yeah. Ossifer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and, and techniques have changed too. And we're, we're going to talk about that, you know, a, a little later also, but since we're still at the beginning, I'm just curious. Um, and I want to ask Evan and Matt both, but Matt, what was Firestone Walker's first IPA? Was it just a Firestone Walker IPA? You know, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting story that's been told many times, but, you know, Union Jack didn't come out until the brewery was already 10 years old. Here we yeah, were, okay. like, you know, south of Sierra Nevada, Lagunitas, everyone's just cranking IPA stone to our south, cranking IPA, and somehow we thought we were going to differentiate ourselves by not making IPA until, I think, <laughs> 2006. Okay. Uh, and then we succumbed to it, but... 
interestingly enough, prior to that, we were making, I don't know if you remember this, but we were brewing under contract Humboldt Brewing Company's beers down here. Oh, and yeah. We, we actually formulated uh, or I formulated uh, Nectar IPA. Yep. And it went on to do pretty well, all things considered. And so, and, and, and funny enough, like you talk about the amount of caramel malt. I mean, that was very much G1 uh, amber in color because it was kind of like the hoppy version of red nectar or the IPA version of red nectar. So it had even more caramel malt than should be there. Um, I see. And, and again, yeah, Centennial, Cascade, maybe a little Chinook, ooh, racy, you know. Okay. <laughs> but Union Jack was the first official uh, uh, Firestone Walker IPA then. Yeah, and what was yeah. so cool about that is, you know, we could go to school on Jeremy's beer, the Sierra Nevada yeah. beer, which would have been Celebration Ale in those days, was really kind of that, like, IPA everybody loved. And it was also a little bit amber in color. Um, I had been brewing a lot of IPA back in Chicago. So when I was at Goose Island, I was brewing uh, Goose IPA or helped formulate and brew that okay. beer. Um, but yeah, so Union Jack, to answer your question, was the first one. Yep. Okay. And then Evan, I do want to know like your first IPA as a professional brewer, but because we're so far back in the history, I actually want to know the first IPA that you drank and liked. Because uh, oh, I had an man. issue with IPAs as an early drinker. I, I, I had sure. come directly over from like, from like domestic American lager to someone shoving, I think, a Sierra Nevada in my face, which I thought was awful until, yeah. <laughs> you know, a week later when they kept shoving them in my face and I never went, turned back. So I'm curious, which is the first one you liked? Yeah, I mean, well, I to before I hit the like thing real quick, I think that the funny thing for me is I remember having a uh, going to a stone. Um, beer dinner that was at uh it was at a bj's for a um uh beer appreciation night that they were doing and stone was hosting and i went through all these beers and i couldn't have hated them more at that time in my life and um you know i uh it wasn't until i was working in bj's where i had a a piranha pale ale straight out of the bright tank the day that Ooh. it was transferred and finished carbon carbon up and everything. Um, I think that was a filtered, I feel like that was a filtered beer. Um, but anyway, that was, it was just that moment of having a fresh hoppy beer that blew my mind and immediately be, made me a lover of, um, of hoppy and bitter beer. And, um, and I think that that's something that uh, I feel like resonates with, um, a lot of people, and I think that um, just giving them, giving people fresh, uh, fresh yeah. IPA ends up just being such, it's, it's a world of a difference. Oh man, it for is. sure. For sure. It, it is the beer that can, you know, just change the fastest under the wrong conditions and, and, and be around too long. Mm. So that's an, it's an excellent point. Um, so I, I do want to skip us ahead a little bit, because I feel like we, you guys, uh, whether you meant to or not, kind of covered that that basic recipe, that style, which was a little heavier on the crystal malt, um, you know, maybe just a slightly, you know, balance was a real, was a real buzzword. And, and I think a key to, I think brewers maybe thought, well, it can't be overly, we have to somehow balance it for consumers to like it. But I do think that then somewhere in the middle of the IPA uh, evolution, you stopped using middle edition hops, you lightened up on crystal malt, and for various reasons that I do want us to discuss, started leaning even more on the hops as the device to drive the IPA. 
Jeremy, does that sound about right to you if we were to skip to that point? Yes, the crystal malt became the 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 villain and also this the source <laughs> of all your oxidation, right? Because it's okay. participating. There's, you know, Strecker aldehydes and staling compounds and all kinds of things that yep. were, were found. And then, and then we dried out our beers. So we began, we no, no longer were we mashing in at 160. Uh, we were going for dry as a bone in many cases. So one, one uh, you know, upper 140s even uh, trying to dry it out. Because that, that dryness is what really lets the hops shine, right? Um, yeah, we, we, we began to pay attention to the minerality of our beers. There's an interesting relationship between calcium sulfate, calcium chloride, and, and perceived bitterness. Okay. And then more importantly, we began relying on uh, what, what's known as non, non-measurable or non-specified bitterness that actually comes from dry hopping. So it's not just the, the terpene fraction, but it's like the fact that the, the soft resins are contributing towards all this other, I'd say like magical mouthfeel, right? We always come mm-hmm. back to like the the steak knife dragging down your tongue or, you know, what, what does resinous mean? Yeah. Uh, that type of thing. And that's, that comes from dry hopping. Yeah. So that change to me, I know it maybe feels like a long time, but it's not been a long time. And that change to me sort of happened so rapidly where we kind of hung on to the recipe uh, for, for a while that that stayed there while the crystal mall, the balance, but then very quickly with the late hopping, with the, with the drying it out, where did this body of, and, and including, by the way, the minerality, where did this body of knowledge like emerge from what seemed like overnight? Is it just because IPA was so popular and y'all were brewing so much of us? Experience, in other words? I mean, I just remember a time, you know, I'll take a step back, Jeremy, when you were talking about the mashing in at 160. There was this, this school of thought that these beers were so bitter, the only way to balance them out was to mash high, add a bunch of caramel malt, and that sweetness was supposed to balance the bitterness. So you're just making this like super oh, heavy duty mm. beer, right? Mm. And then yeah, we all realized like drinkability. support the hops. You got to yeah. support them. But I mean, that was, that's what everybody talked about. And then, you know, the, you start brewing, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I mean, in our brewery, it was just like we kept enjoying like the better we got with our yeast and and healthy yeast and better and, and fermentations and played around yeah with those lowering the mash temperatures all of a sudden the hops started coming out mm-hmm. and I the see. nuances of the hops yeah and i can't speak for your breweries but at goose we had learned because we'd gone out to the west coast and brewed with the shoots about these really late yeah like whirlpool hopping and we started leaning more and more to whirlpool hopping. And the more we threw in the whirlpool, you know, we were getting isomerization <laughs> there. So we had to back more and more out of the front end and the middle. And you're always trying to find a place to remove the early hops. So you could add more in the late. And we even had yep. recipes that were like, there weren't even any kettle hops. They're just like, everything was going in the whirlpool. And this is still in the nineties really, you know? So um, I think that was, that was kind of from my perspective, what was going on. Okay. Yeah. See, even on the brewing network, the brewing network's first show was in 2005. And I remember for the first six months or a year, every interview we did that we talked to IPAs was still this crystal malt recipe you're talking about. Yep. Uh, now, there was talk of dryness. We had Vinny on the shows back then. There was, there was talk about that. But still, we always heard about middle edition hops and, um, and, and, and crystal malt. But I'm telling you, by 2006, like within a year of the show, brewers were coming on the show and they're like, middle edition, what? We don't, no, I, don't ever, I don't think about that anymore. Just Whirlpool. 
you know, and, and slowly they got to the only whirlpool, like you just mentioned, Matt, for a while it was, well, you still got to put your bitter in your whirlpool, but it just around that like middle, you know, 2005, 2006, it just, it, it happened fast. And in my opinion, for the good, because now it's been sort of experimental ever since, right? You guys just keep driving further and further into the style. I feel um, like, I mean, for me, like in down here in Southern California, I mean, breweries that were showing that off, like in a pretty, in pretty cool ways were um, breweries like Alpine, uh, mm-hmm. you know, where these beers are just getting really light in color. Um, and they're all about that um, super aromatic, uh, you know, it's all about flavor and aroma with, with the IPA instead of, you know, the IBU sort of war. Um, and I think the same goes for breweries like Pizza Port, um, with yeah. how dry those beers continued to, to become. And, you know, it wasn't about supporting the hops with this caramel malt thing. Um, you know, Vinny had already been doing it, you know, for a while um, as well. And so I th- it is interesting, like, you know, so many brewers sort of having this beer that is uh, just like Jeremy was talking about with... Um, these really high um, sort of chewy, sweeter IPAs, mm-hmm. you know, where people are putting a lot of caramel malt in them. They're, you know, burtonizing the water and they're using so much sulfate because they read an article that that's what they're supposed to do because that's what, how IPA used to be in England, apparently. And so, you know, instead of just taking it from a standpoint of like, what tastes good to me? And I don't know. I mean, the, the, the sort of IBU war that um, we all kind of saw there for a while is similar to, to like the sour war that we saw in sour beer as well. Who can make the most sour beer? And it's right. Like, well, we can all make the most bitter beer. We can make the most sour beer. But like, you know, the, the whole goal is to just hopefully be able to drink the thing. And so um, I know for me and like my palate and my brewing, like, um, I just kind of ended up there by <clears throat> tweaking the beer every batch uh, okay. from batch to batch and then continuing to go, you know what? Every time I bring out the caramel malt, I like it more. And so right. it tastes less oxidized the more caramel malt I take out. So then I just continue to take out the caramel malt and get the body leaner, work on the, the water profile, you know, and a, and a range of these other things. But it's just like, um, it is interesting though, exactly what you're saying, where there was this like, this like switch, you know, where just right. immediately, like out of nowhere, uh, everyone kind of started, you know, pulling these things out. And to the listen to you. 2006 switch. This, yeah, the 06 switch. That's right. <laughs> we just invented that here on the show, Jeremy. Thank you. Um, and hearing you describe it that way, Evan, just, you know, that's, that's not good. Um, uh, nice it makes lace, me man. think that you, you, you guys sort of followed, hey, this is how it was supposed to be done for long enough. And then you became emboldened by your own successes. You became emboldened by your, I'm going to experiment with removing it. And I think that has so much to do with the evolution of the IPA. Um, and before we jump even further ahead, I would be remiss if I didn't land at like some of the unique IPAs that came out when we started messing with black IPAs, this one's oh, yeah. what black rye IPA, uh, which just won uh, a medal, uh, Matt, good job. Um, 
Actually, like, oh, Sam, Sam, brewed, Sam brewed that down at the Propagator. So, like <laughs> oh, Jeremy, really? I can't take any credit for brewing the thing. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> uh, and um, another uh, Central Coast brewery just sent a black IPA up to us from um, Liquid Gravity. Uh-huh. That bl- reminded me that I love black IPAs. That they weren't. That they shouldn't have just been this flash in the pan. What, that if, what if, happened? They all they all hatched again. Like they all went away, <laughs> and then yeah. it rained, and they hatched. And then boom, they're back. I'm going to crack this one over. But they're what, again, to like the experimentalism of the IPA, right? Like the Pacific Northwest wanted to make it their own in some ways is kind of how the story goes, I guess. But there's always this way to experiment with the style. So I I was going to ask both of you uh, in your experience, like going from these, like, yeah, caramel malt based, pulling it out. Did you also drop the IBUs down as you went? Is Lagunitas IPA and, and now Evan, like your West coast, you know, I mean, Union Jack used to have a target of, of 75, which was hard to even get there after, you know, fermentation and, and, and everything. Um, and it, it's not that anymore. Lagunitas definitely dropped. Uh, it went from around 70 to currently it's at 50. Yeah. And even 50 is starting to feel too high for the times, but that crystal malt is still there. And, and that beer, our philosophy towards other IPAs really went towards uh, like little something, something in particular. It really went towards softening the BU and bringing the dry hop up, right? Uh, it, the philosophy being the later you use something in the brewing process, the, the more it, it kind of shines, right, in a, in a naked way. The more you're chewing on the hop cone. The more you're taking your face to Yakima in September, yes. you know, mm-hmm. all those, all those nice things. Um, so that, that, I think that definitely set the stage uh, to talk a little bit of what Evan mentioned. He talked about the, uh, what way I think of it was the IBU pissing match that was going on <laughs> in the, uh, <laughs> in the two thousands. <laughs> who would, who would think that because every action has an equal opposite reaction and practice precedes theory. That the, that the 100 IBU movement would end in zero BU, but like seven pound per barrel hazies, you know, right. the, the quest for the crystal clear 100 IBU double IPA now lands us the zero BU, seven pound per barrel murky chicken stock delicious thing, right? So. <laughs> yeah, we did 12 recently. That was, um, yeah, that wasn't, I mean, I don't know, that's kind of a waste. Okay. Per barrel and that you know, hazy, oh, hazy double um, Sat- saturation, uh, saturation gradient. Well, it was actually a mistake is the funny part because I thought it was a double batch in, in the tank and it was a single batch. And so uh, I quadruple dry hopped it on accident and it was awful. Like, you know, like it just goes to show you that like, you know, you do too much of something. It reminded me of, um, if you guys ever did this, um, uh, at BJ's, we, we, uh, we would have these cask nights. And so like, for me, I'd be like, Oh dude, doing cask night, man, I'm going to, uh, next week. So I'm going to put so much hops in that cask. Holy shit. And then like, you have this, you know, you'd have this cask that just literally tastes so insanely overly extracted and bitter, uh, all from the dry hop in there. And it's yeah. absolutely awful. 
Um, and you'd cough on the on the powder as as I was drinking those. I'd get <laughs> the hot burn. <laughs> you know, it just kind of gets you. Um, <laughs> uh, the rye black IPA is fantastic, by the way. Um, so, 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 yeah. Jeremy, you you mentioned uh, fifty IBUs ish on Lagunitas IPA. Evan, um, Radiant Beauty, and some of your other West Coast. What's the target? Um. Well, you know, I. <laughs> My answer sucks. So I know uh, your answer. A, I'm going to love it. No, 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 no. My answer is funny because I don't test. So I don't like really know. Um, I think one time I sent beer to you guys to test it for me and we came in at like 65 IBUs, I want to say. Um, and that really surprised me because um, my target IBU, like bittering charge is like 110. And so. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, we use a lot of hop to bitter the beer and, um, you know, I think it ends up just being, um, one of those things that, uh, it's really about, um, the water profile, um, the salts you're using, um, uh, the pH, um, you know, the range of these sort of things that are whether or not you're going to extract a fair amount of bitterness out of those hops or, um, maybe just, uh, add uh, a really nice fullness to them that you're still getting that. Um, oh yeah, there you go. Some pet the tiger. So is that also hopped in a similar way where you yeah. think that it's like calcs up over a hundred, but you know, analytically yes. it's going to, and, and Jeremy, you, that's I mean, not even taking into consideration uh whirlpool addition uh, right. and dry hopping. So that's just bittering um, charges uh, only. But, but there's clearly a saturation point. And I mean, oh, I, I feel like when 75 was the target on Union Jack, it was almost impossible to consistently get there. It was almost sure. like we should just lower the analytical spec to 70 so we can feel <clears throat> like we're in spec and quit trying to hit this like almost impossible number. Jeremy, did you find like a saturation point in your brewery? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's just like a distiller trying to reach, you know, one, 100 percent ethanol or you know 200 proof it's like the harder you try to get there the more disappointed you'll be uh but um you know the big thing that that we've we've learned and you know i truly love where evan is at right like like not having an analytical lab that doesn't feel like that far away from where we were at because you do everything to your sensory standard right because the nose knows Yep. And the taste tells. And ultimately, that's the best lab equipment you'll ever need. Mm. And, uh, and so, but we did find that the yeast strain matters a lot with BU loss and terpene loss. Uh, so, in other words, you could have uh, 100 wart BUs and post-fermentation as little as 50 to 70, but you could switch strains. You could do the same recipe with like a, a gentle... Bavarian lager yeast, and it would be com completely different. It would be much less, right? Wow. So in other words, the more explosive the fermentation is, the, the more of that BU loss you're going to have. But then you come in and we're going to dry hop. Uh, you know, that's another thing that I think we all as IPA brewers learned uh, in, the, in the 90s and 2000s that we didn't know had a name. Later, it got a name. It was called biotransformation. But we learned a lot about like the timing of the dry hop, Yes. Like, in other words, I call it the, I dry hopped my beer too late. Why does it taste like cantaloupes and watermelons? Effect? Catchy name. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Evan's going to steal that one. You better trademark it quick. 
It's a very, it's already taken, Matt. It's a crowded space. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the timing of the dry hop is so insanely important. And I think that that's one of the things that a lot of people, you know, a lot of that conversation comes up a lot with hazy IPA and hazy IPA brewers as they are, um, uh, or as we are looking at, you know, um, getting some biotransformation depending on like whether or not you have to harvest yeast or not. But I think it's, um, it's an interesting sort of aspect of how those hops are going to express themselves in that beer, because mm-hmm. um, the amount of times that, uh, I mean, we, we try, uh, we trial this out all the time in our brewery of just, what is that exact moment for each beer style, you know, for West coast IPA or for actually even a specific varietal, you know, as an example for me so far, like, um, Sabro is a hot variety that is extremely polarizing and isn't, um, necessarily something I'm overly excited about for it's like sunscreen sort of character. <laughs> and it's like, you know, coconut, um, little coconut. Yeah. Uh, well the su- like, yeah, the coconut, like suntan lotion, you know, and so, um, anyway, but that, that hop added at day two of fermentation, um, totally like transforms into something that is super dope and is actually a coconut character that, um, for me and my palate isn't, uh, polarizing anymore. And it, you know, it opens up a little bit more and becomes something different. And, um, and I think the same comes for just dry hopping in general. I mean, um, that warmer fermentation, uh, like for, for us and our brewery, I mean, we're dry hopping uh, beer in the presence of yeast. Um, and I think that that's important. Um, we end up with beer that's less dank. Uh, we end up with uh, IPAs that are more fruity. Um, and the moment that we say drop that temp, we're getting, you know, so much more vegetal, uh, danker sort of characters in those beers. Um, and the moment that we even allow yeast to settle out more is another aspect of that entire thing um so matt the beer you're drinking actually we experimented with waiting another day for um more yeast to settle out because we've continued to be talking about um uh shoot the sulfur compound uh i can't think of at the moment um from fermentation but the um Anyway, so we wanted to get more yeast to settle out. So we dry hopped it a day later than we normally do. And we had to let it sit for a little bit longer. And we, we watched the beer go from clear. And then over the course of like two days, it finally was starting this, this fermentation again. And we really started to see that, uh, that activity kind of come up as it's going through its creep. But the, um, the aromatics on, um, and the hop aromatics on that beer specifically weren't as rich and as uh punchy um as other beers that we make because of um just not having that timing done correctly um Mm -hmm. timing done the way that we personally or i or i personally like it yeah so So methyl methyl mercaptan i think was the word you were looking for mercaptan thank you yeah we've been like you know continuing to um have mercaptan here and there and i think it's something that's probably always honestly been in the beer and at a certain point like you're smelling something and you go oh uh i don't like this now what is that and so it's just interesting as we all kind of grow as tasters and brewers um the things that might have always been there 
that uh, just all of a sudden are just in clear view at a, at a certain day on a, you know, at a certain point. Jeremy, do you have a strategy for not to get too geeky or techie, but for managing where captain and your, in your process? Is it hop selection driven as well, or is it timing of a dry hop? It all starts with taking everything I learned at UC Davis and every lecture from Charlie Bamforth and Dr. Lewis and all the books uh, and usually putting them in the brew kettle and throwing all of it because I, I learned, <laughs> I learned that all these, uh, these things that were associated as negative flavors like methyl mercaptan uh, and, and various uh, thiol, which is like a sulfurous terpene um, were, were considered negative, but the thing is they were considered negative to lager beer. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we uh, Justin did a really good job of s- steering us away from the history of IPA, like long, long, long ago. Uh, but, you know, a, a, a big thing about it is that the English were the ones that brought us dry hopping. The, mm-hmm. the most Reinheitsgebot thing, beer can only be made with these four things. And, you know, flash forward hundreds of years later and brewers are getting all kinds of fruit compounds out of their hops. Yep. And I think part of it is what Evan has been talking about, the timing of, of the dry hop and the importance of hop selection, which you know, uh, you know, and I know that there is just Lagunitas is infamous in the valley, the entire valley for preferring a certain profile that we call it a let it hang profile, right? <laughs> uh, if, if, if the Amarillo is perfect on a Monday, Lagunitas will love it on a Friday. Um, <laughs> God. And, uh, and we're notorious for that because we, we like that uh, extra expression of cattiness, uh, sulfur, you know, all the things that, that the, bre- the brewing professors that, 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 that I can remember that I really, you know, strongly look up to, uh, would phrase as a negative thing, right? Like, like uh, a caddy and, and, and onion, garlic, OG, all that kind of stuff. There is a break, breaking point, though, where it goes too far. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the timing, uh, the hop choice selection, the, 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 the timing of the harvest, the timing of the dry hop, I like to think of those as like two very important buckets that live on two very different lands. Um, and, and, and just the fact that... Uh, uh, you know, sometimes brewers, like the whole like hazy is lazy thing. Haha, that's funny. Well, I, I know hazy brewers that are so worried about getting the timing right that they just opt to throw the, fer- throw the hops in the fermenter and cool in on top of them. And Matt, I very distinctly remember you telling me years ago of a, of a, a larger brewery that was doing just this before we had ever heard the word biotransformation. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Boom. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say that, but it's okay. You can edit. <laughs> so, yeah, right. but here, yeah, but I won't. <laughs> just to, to keep going on that, because I think it's, it's actually something I haven't heard anybody really nail is that, so you, you pick ripe and you got, you know, it's just, there's all sorts of stuff going on there. Good and bad. There's a lot of yep. sulfur compounds, but you just know you're going to get all that ripe, just good stuff. Um, and so are you saying that if you can get it in, in like, I'm not saying mid firm, but with some yeast activity or, or, or it, so is it, do you think it's biotransformation? Do you think it's CO2 evolution, removing the, the really volatile stuff and allowing the other mid oils to hang? Or, I mean, what is it in your mind? 
Well, it, in my mind, it starts it starts in the fields. You know, with our we're, we're lucky enough that we brew we brew enough beer to where we have those relationships with the farmers, and uh, the terpene expression of the sulfur thiols is is going to happen towards the tail end, right? So you lock that in as best as you can. In the reality of their their picking equipment and their labor and all those real world like obstacles that they face, you compromise. You get that right. And then depending on your yeast type, uh, that's a big thing. Like we, we all live in this world of our yeast types and we bring a guest yeast type in and it, it can really wreak havoc on our brewery. Um, like like here, to put it in perspective, like some yeast don't biotransform hardly at all. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas others are, are slutty and just <laughs> go at it. And they, they, they're the ultimate hop creep. When you, when you Google, Hop creep, you know, you, you bring up, you know, that, that yeast. Uh, but um, it, 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 it is a compromise of what happens in the field and, and knowing your yeast type and getting that timing right. And then the other thing, yeah, you alluded to another very, very important point is that I call fermentation, or I think of it as the second boil, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, your, it's, your, it's your next chance to boil off the volatiles, but you do it at a much, much lower boiling point love that okay yeah, that's awesome i mean the, um that entire comment is like uh is pretty cool because i i continue to feel like <clears throat> we deal with the same sort of thing with that you know that timing of when to dry hop where it's just like you know there's certain things that you don't want to last uh in what it is um and having that blow off you know or having that uh hopefully you know transform a little bit uh ends up being like you know the uh, for our, for uh, our expression, it's, you know, uh, very fruit driven. Like it's um, um, hopefully it's not, uh, there's a reminder of say cannabis um, there, but it's not, you know, it's not full garlic onion. It's not full dank. And instead it's just like that little kiss, but it's like mm. um, the second boil comment's pretty dope. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to take this opportunity to, to bring the, to kind of tie this together, bring the consumer palette into this conversation a little bit, because I think it fits right here as we as we sort of transition into what is a new school IPA now or or hazy. I don't even know what a new school IPA is. They're so you guys brew them so differently. Everybody does. Um, that is one uh, pet the tiger um, for anybody just listening to the podcast. Uh, and by the way, it was Wookie Jack that I always I don't think I said I just held up the can to the video viewers. Um, but so, you know, you guys uh, talking about the IBA. IBU wars, I think is, is a good transition to all of this too, because you guys, brewers play the IBU wars so well that it translated over to the consumers too, where the nerdy, the beer nerds, they, the question was how many IBUs are in the beer? They, that was a common conversation at the bar among craft beer consumers. I don't hear that conversation anymore, uh, lending to exactly what Evan kind of described where He's not even measuring it. And, and I think there's a real reason for that. It's not because Evan's eccentric, although he can be. Um, it's because the consumer palate is not, just as Evan isn't, is not as interested in the bitterness value of a beer anymore. And so now, uh, and this is what I'm getting at, now when my customers come into the Hop Grenade to buy your beers, they talk about hops by name. They don't ask me what the most alcoholic beer is anymore. They don't ask me how many IBUs. I can't remember the last time I've been asked about IBUs, 
but you you're damn sure they know the names of hot varietals and they have favorites and they're fans of this one. And even this old dog now does too. I've started to discover. Uh, so Jeremy, uh, Matt taught me about hop varietals. Um, you know, I, I started interviewing Matt early on and, and he was kind of our hop expert at the Brewing Network. And he taught me about the names of different hops and hop varietals. Jeremy taught me exactly what you guys just talked about, which was how the same varietal can be different. Jeremy taught me that I actually can like Simcoe because he gave me the super catty one. He's like, this is the one you don't like. Um, he's like, by the way, we kind of do. Uh, and then he gave me the one that's less catty. And I was like, oh, Simcoe's good. He's like, yeah, I know. You, you drink Russian River, so you like Simcoe. You just didn't know it. He taught me how this variation. Okay, point being, consumers now know this shit too. And they're so excited when they're like, oh, it's a mosaic beer. I have to, I have to try that. Oh, you, you put Strata in it? Oh, I can't wait to get Evan's Strata beer. Like That's now where part of where this new school is, right? So Jeremy, hop growing, and I know you know this too, Matt, and, uh, has come so far along with, there is, no, uh, there is not this evolution of the iPad that we're in now without the growers playing along with you is kind of what I'm getting at. I mean, back in the early days, Justin, um, we actually had to know how to brew because all we had was Cascade and Centennial and Chinook. And then, and then one day, I think of hops like, like, like boy bands, you know, we were, we were, we were back in the early days and, and, and then, and then we had uh, sync and the Backstreet Boys, you know, that was, that was Simcoe and Amarillo. And then all of a sudden, the, the freaking Beebs busted out onto the scene. Oh, my God, the Beebs. That's Citra, right? right. And, yeah. and, then, uh, and then now we have these polarizing uh, TikTok stars. That's, that's Sabro. <laughs> but uh, let's not lose, fact of, or lose sight of the fact <laughs> yeah. that uh, uh, breeding is an art form unto itself as well. And it's a very exciting thing that uh, for, for folks uh, like Matt and I, and, and I, I truly hope Evan as well, although we were, we were a little bit robbed of our hop harvest uh, this last thing, because that's where we all come together and, and invade. And they were like, it's COVID. It's, it, we're, getting, we're getting your wildfires up here. I was like, why are they my wildfires? And they were like, we're grumpy. So we, we uh, took Jeremy, let off. me just clarify for our, any consumers listening or watching. What Jeremy's saying is that, you know, they used to get to go up to Washington and pick the hops, you know, not pick them off the field, but, but pick their lot, go through them, really select with the growers, with the distributors. And that got, like everything else, disrupted by COVID. And it was more of a, of a Zoom experience of hop selection, which clearly changed things for you, Jeremy. Well, it's just, it's just the fact that um, this, these breeding programs and these just knockout varieties that I feel like kind of truly started with Simcoe and and the and the and the, the fact that there's like an early middle and a late Simcoe, like it goes from like you know floral to grapefruit to cat piss, uh, just like you were talking about, uh, and varying degrees of pine and trees and things. Um, so the brewers began to really re- really care and to really want to know their hop farmers, and then we got together with the hop farmers, and the thing that we realized is that these guys were a lot like us. They were like these cool guys and gals that really had this passion for what they did and they were just huge nerds 
and they loved to go and drink beer and they would tolerate hanging out and in, 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 a, in an aquarium of farts uh, late night <laughs> <laughs> to learn about their craft. Yes. Yes. Oh we, we were bonded together and, and marinating in one another's uh, emissions. <laughs> and, and Jeremy, just to put a fine point on that, you know, the, the ones that I have, have interviewed are, you know, several generations uh, of hop farmers and the new, these new generations that you're talking about, the ones that you've been hanging out with, they are excited about hops. Just, you know, they inherited the family business, but want to make it their own. And these new hop varieties and how they did that are part of their story that, you know, that's, that's their mark on the family legacy. Um, Matt could add some color to this, but I truly feel that uh, craft brewing saved the valley. And when I, when I say that, I mean, we saved these, in some cases, six or seven generation farms. Uh, a, a lot of them, you know, came, came over. Uh, typically, they immigrate, their ancestors immigrated over from France. And we, we saved these farms from the, from the banks. I mean, craft yeah. saved them. And they, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a beautiful story. We, we made their kids want to come back and get interested and, and now they're, they're opening up uh, breweries up there and brewing great mm-hmm. beer themselves. It's truly beautiful what's happening. Yeah, it's and, true. And, and those of you and consumers... I hope, that, I hope that happens. I think it's happening in New Zealand and Australia to some extent, and then maybe New Zealand more so. Um, and I don't know if that's happening in Germany yet. And I, I just hope that that hop region can somehow be saved by the same wave. Um, they've been a little stubborn to, to come along for the ride. Um, but yeah. that's a, that's a, that's a provocative point, Matt, because the people listening to this are probably unaware of the size of the average German hop farm and how much smaller they are. And so how much more, you know, lo- localized they are. And, uh, I, I haven't really thought about that. I, I often think about how they lack the irrigation. So they're more kind of subject to the forces of mother nature all it takes is one bad thing in germany and we're all paying more for our hops so we're like pissed at germany you know yeah and and for those who don't already or haven't heard it before and what jeremy's talking about i mean the average u.s hop farm now is at least 500 acres and i think most of these guys have grown to closer to a thousand acres and there's about 75 to 80 of them in germany it's literally you know a mule and a couple (laughs) of folks i mean we're talking like 40 acres is a big farm in germany there's massive there's like 1,500 approximate um, spread uh, across a fairly large area. And yeah, they are truly family, small enterprises. It's like dad's yeah. running, running the picker, grandpa's running the kiln. And right. you know, the oldest son is driving the tractor back and forth from the field. And they can pretty much do that with maybe two hired hands that came in from Poland for the, for the harvest. And that's, yeah, that's a German hop farm. Well, and, and Matt and I were going to do an episode uh, with hop farmers and on hop farming and on hop breeding to, to really cover this because you just don't get to talk about craft beer without talking about hops, uh, whatever size of, of the farm, really. Um, I do want to kind of use I, I, I was going to actually, I, before we get too far away from a point that Jeremy was driving towards, and I think Evan might have a cool uh, take on this. So you were talking about this idea that consumers are now keyed into varieties and just like wine drinkers, you know, they may even know like a little bit about the terroir, like where it was grown and they might even get into early harvest, late harvest. I mean, that's how 
keyed into these hopper eyes they are potentially. But I love this concept of just taking it to the next level, like the cannabis industry has. And do you foresee either of you a time when we're actually talking about the, the terpenes, we're talking about the actual compounds that we're focusing on that are hop driven, uh, hop derived, maybe biotransformed. And is that something we're going to put on the label or at least on our websites at some point? Hmm. Pretty cool idea for sure. I mean, um, the, the evolution that we've already kind of seen in the marketplace for uh, IPA has been so much fun where um, in the last, I don't know, 10 years or something, we've continued to see more and more breweries continue to put, you know, what hops are being used into these beers instead of it just being this elusive, like, hey, here's my IPA. Um, seeing stuff like Citra um, be just, you know, maybe quite possibly one of the biggest hop varietals uh as far as like the pinot noir of um of beer where it's just like people see that they see citra and they immediately go you know what i think i'm gonna like that and you're like well i mean that brewer could have totally messed it up but sure right. like let's let's try it out um i mean i absolutely you know i can see things continuing to get geekier and geekier as all of us continue to go down the rabbit hole and continue to get like and uh and just kind of nerd out on all of what this is you know um just early harvest versus mid versus late on um you know these different picks you know as an example like you said is just like you know uh maybe just the tip of the iceberg and then the uh the other things you said are a little above my head <laughs> but jeremy i know you're studying that stuff so do you think that's something that's like consumable by the consumer so to speak Evan just gave me this great idea that our friends at uh, Yakima Chief and Haas would kill us. But we, we, we IPA brewers, we could deliberately brew citra beers that suck as a kind of like Robin Hood, <laughs> you know, Reddit GameStop kind of thing. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, and, and we could we could crush that hop and let a new one rise in its place. But no, I would never I would never do that. That's a and that's a beautiful we'll, uh, hop. Yeah, and then we'll all get the uh, you know the the better price because the price oh. is going to drop. Uh, I think it'll I think it'll work out pretty well for us. Well, yeah. well, keep keep in mind, Evan. One thing we cannot change is the yield per acre. So the the uh, the Riwakas and the Citras are are never going to produce like a Columbus or a, you know something that that makes more. That's ultimately, I think, popularity does drive the price, but yield per acre, I think, is the primary driver. Uh, but, okay. you know, back to the terpenes, I, I personally, I have, as Justin knows, I have one, and Matt, and, and probably Evan too, but I have kind of one foot in the cannabis side, uh, and then one foot in the hop side, and I'm watching the two worlds collide, uh, and, and very happy about it all. But I also, um, you know, hearing that our, our friends in the, in the analytical world, you know, with the, the hop Steiner, Yakima Chief, Haas, or... Uh, and in the cannabis side are identifying 300, 400, 500, 600 uh, uh, monoterpenes and sesquiterpenes, really de-romanticizing both plants, which of course, 25 million years ago were the same plant, an, mm -hmm. important, an important point that connects the two, right? Because the, as the plant was evolving, the, 
the cannabis plant said, I'm okay with no water and I'll stay in the savannas, uh, the dry areas. And then the, the hot plant was like, oh, I need a shit ton of water. So it chased the creek beds, right? And that's how it kind of diverged evolutionarily. And so they're both, you know, terpene factories. One makes alpha acid, the other one makes cannabinoids. But the terpene part is largely the same. And I don't know, as soon as you start throwing around, you know, uh, uh, you know, alpha-pinene, uh, terpineol, caryophylline, myrcene, you, you, I found in my experience that that excites the cannabis people more than it excites the beer people for some reason. Mm. And it's probably because that those terpenes are, have been found to have um, medicinal and uh, kind of health and wellness benefits when combined with CBD uh, and, and the other cannabinoids. Uh, whereas us brewers, we are, we are beholden to a lot of major regulation that does not allow us to ever preach about benefits. You know, that's mm. why I look at like, I look at like what's happening with seltzer and it's like now with superfoods and antioxidants and I'm like, whoa, playing with fire there, buddy. Like that is no matter how you phrase it, you can't make a health claim, you know? So yeah. that's kind of my take on it. Yeah. It's it. That was I awesome, think it's, man. You just dropped some knowledge. That was absolutely. That was, that was <laughs> yes. And I think, you know, it, it kind of goes ha hand in hand, Jeremy, to answer, if I can answer your question too, Matt, I think, yes, I think a simple answer is yes, that, that, that consumers will start to talk about these compounds. And the reason it, it just kind of piggybacking on Jeremy is it's also just part of the information age. We now not only do know more, but want to know more about everything that we're into. And, and we have access to it. And the more you brewers learn about it, the more we learn about it. Um, and so I just, I think that just the world at large goes hand in hand with consumers knowing more about terpenes and, and um, you know, maybe even later finding out their own health effects so that you don't have to tell them illegally, Jeremy. Um, so... Uh, I don't see how it could go other way. Hops aren't going away. IPAs are not going away. I mean, it's, it's such an amazing journey to watch. Um, and then, and so, and we got to land on, on hazy beer before, before we run out of time and some of these new school things. And I want to start that by saying that, um, that you brewers and, and hop varietals have reminded me that I like beer and hops. Uh, the brewing network can be a little curmudgeonly. Certain members of the Brewing Network especially can be a little curmudgeonly about the IPA and about <laughs> hops. And uh, COVID um, got me back to work in my tap room on a daily basis. And uh, in order for me to responsibly sell beer to my guests, I wanted to be able to give them honest recommendations. So I just started trying a lot of beer again. And it turns out I like diesel. And it turns out I like dank. And it turns out Jeremy's right that a little caddy has a place in things. And it turns <laughs> out, Evan, don't shy completely away from that sulfur. Like all of these things, I, it's really reminded me um, how much I like beer and how much I like hops. Um, and so, Evan, I kind of want to throw this at you because I, I feel like my impression of you is that you, when you walk into your brewery, you might feel like the world is your oyster because you get to now just be a part of this like new school. No, is that that? Because when I taste your beer, that's how I feel. I'm like, wow, Evan had fun that day. Like he oh, just he had a lot of fun. I love hearing <laughs> that. I love that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, um, I was just having a conversation with my buddy Bob uh, on the way to work today. Um, and 
we were talking about like owning a business and uh, how difficult it is and everything. And yeah. I, I, when I walk into work, I, uh, I end up, I actually get, uh, I get humbled on a daily basis uh, as I walk through and I taste the tanks and I smell the tanks. Again, okay. I'm humbled by uh, certain things that we are, you know, battling or certain things that are happening in, in each, diff- each different tank. But, um, but I like this positive direction so much more. Um, let's, let's, yeah, let's, uh, let's go in your direction. Just adopt uh, it. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but you do, you must love to experiment. I mean, if nothing else, oh, yeah. you love no, absolutely. to challenge yourself with these beers. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, I, abs- I mean, like, I love continuing to tweak everything all the time, uh, which is one of the things with... Um, our beer that I, that I do talk about um, pretty regularly is this idea that um, consistency is cool. Consistency is great. But like, and if you want to taste the exact same thing every time, you might need to go to another brewery because that's not going to be us. Um, okay. We um, we're constantly uh, tweaking and evolving every single beer. Um, to a point that uh, sometimes it's, you know, uh, it can be a little aggressive. It can be just like a little, a little, you know, a smidgen of a change, but, uh, but either way, um, the constant uh, experimentation is so much fun. You know, having the exact same recipe and continuing to just tweak um, a yeast strain, um, uh, the same exact hop, but from a different farm, um, and a, a range of these other things is just like never endlessly so, so interesting. Sure. So then kind of a broader question to all three of you for that would be, uh, and, and Jeremy, I love that you kind of alluded to it earlier where people are like, oh, hazy is lazy. I, I think the opposite. I, I feel like hazy gave you brewers some a challenge a new challenge something else to do and part of that is uh because you've all had good ones and you've all had bad ones and you're like shit how do i what's the good one what makes it how do you get it that way how does it stay hazy how is it the thing that consumers want like to me hazy beer uh i found people who don't like beer all of a sudden like beer because it's not overly bitter and they're they're like oh it says ipa on i won't like it try this and they like it so I feel like it gave you this new realm to enter. Jeremy, do you find that that's something it did for you? Absolutely. And to, to tie it in with something that Matt was talking about earlier, because I, I, I like to think about the two great brewing traditions on the planet. One of them is English, and they gave us dry hopping. And the other one is German. And we were just talking about the Germans. And the Germans gave us Hefeweizen. And what did Hefeweizen teach us? It taught us that drinking hazy beer was okay, mm. right? And, it, and at some point, a brewer, presumably on the East Coast, uh, thought about Hefeweizen and thought about dry hopping and probably also thought about how dry hopping makes all of our beers acutely hazy. And that had previously been bothering us, right? Because we had been obsessing over our West Coast IPAs that need to be... Yeah crystal clear and they can't have schlarf in them and uh i will work on the wikipedia entry for schlarf thank you like i will get that posted but um you know the idea that not filtering our beers would let more 
hot compounds come over. I'll never forget looking at a scanning electron micrograph of our beer once. And it wasn't even a particularly hoppy beer, but the, they noted lupulin granules in the beer. And I, I got like a, a, little, a little brewer mini chubs. Uh, yeah. I was, you know, I was like lupulin granules, chubs. <laughs> You're like, that's awesome. <laughs> that's so cool. And, uh, and then that the dry hopping can, can cause haze. And then using the schlarfy grains, oats and un- unmalted cereal adjuncts. But I'd be remiss to not point out that back to the Germans, the yeast matters. The yeast is the ultimate vehicle for the, for the haze. Evan and the world, I give you Jeremy Marshall. Like if you want something <laughs> broken down in a way that we all love and understand, you invite Jeremy Marshall to the show is what you do. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I do love that you brought up the, the Hefeweizen, right? Uh, you know, the, oh, in my curmudgeonly days, I'd be like, oh, it's just a half or it's hazy because it's a homebrew and we could never clear up the beers. But it's, it's become so much more than that. Matt, I know you, you have an opinion on hazy. No, I mean, it's so funny that you brought it up because it was the only way that I could, could do it is to try to like dip back and look at history and like, how does this make sense, this hazy IPA? And exactly that, it led me to Germany and, and, and the masters of top fermented hazy beers. Um, you know, the only, the only um, obstacle in their world was that they chose, you know, phenolic yeasts which don't necessarily work mm. all the time great with uh, uh, hops, but they also had super uh, isoamyl or, or banana-driven yeast that that fruity ester works great with hops. So, yeah, yeah they're, they're kind of the masters of it. And I guess our, our, our approach when we, when we built Mind Haze was to kind of take this approach of like basically I'm making a Bavarian-style wheat beer, trying to remove the phenolics and add a lot of hop esters and fun stuff. And, yeah, absolutely. And, and Evan, when you launched Green Cheek, because, you know, I feel like I was kind of like there, like, oh, Evan's doing this thing. And then I remember you calling me going, yeah. And like the first couple of beers I'm launching are hazies. I was like, whoa, okay, <laughs> that's what we're doing. Because I remember you going right into it. The lager guy. And I remember from Noble, like, oh, yeah, cranking out these insane IPAs. And then I feel like that totally influenced, and correct me if I'm wrong, Radiant Beauty and some of the West Coast IPAs, because then you started kicking out these beers with some tropical, interesting hop character on the West Coast side as well. So, I mean, was there any tie-in on the influence there? I mean, I feel like that um, in regards to like, what, like, well, the, I mean, the West Coast IPA, like trying to get these beers more, um, fresh, tropical, fruity, all of these different aromatics. Like um, I give this guy too much credit too often, but Tim from Cellar Maker um, is one of those guys that um, makes some of the best smelling um, Mm. IPAs uh, for me where I talk to him constantly. I mean, like um, I talked to him yesterday. Like I, I'm always just like, I, I feel like, it's such a funny conversation because I'm just like always asking like, what are you not telling me? Like <laughs> we, uh, we select tops together. Uh, we, we share a lot of the same lots. Uh, but when I smell his beer versus my beer, I'm always just like, man, the, the aromatics on your beer are so cool. And so anyway, um, I, I think that they're, uh, 
there has to be uh, a uh, an influence there, whether I realize it or not. You know, just continuing to go through and you know the the smell and the uh, the taste of a like of hazy IPAs um, are are it's pretty insane how a hazy IPA tastes fresh versus how it continues to age. Where I feel like clear IPA or West Coast IPA. Um, doesn't have the same long lasting effects of mm. whatever this, um, you know, yeast and hop combo is able to do. Um, it all like hazy IPAs end up like kind of all mu- getting muddled into this same sort of spot that a hazy IPA old ends up tasting better than a West Coast IPA old for my palate. Interesting. And, um, and so it's interesting to me because I, you know, as I look at like, uh, ratings on untapped and stuff like that. I look at these different beers and I think that like, you know, the, the hazy IPA just ends up having this, like this shelf life that is, uh, that is so damn good that people talk about aging these beers for over a month, um, until they decide to finally drink them. Um, which is, I mean, I'm sure a lot has to do that with, um, hot bite, but also they just, um, yeah, end up having a, a better flavor profile, I guess, for some people. But I just you're blowing my mind right now. This is the opposite that I would yeah, that I've exactly. heard most brewers say and that I would have expected to hear you say. But I also think I understand what you mean. I am since I love West Coast IPA so much, I am fully aware how quickly and almost overnight like like that uh sometimes depending on the brewer you know depending on the brewer because oxygen is such a huge part of of all of this you know um but it's like yeah i an old uh west coast ipa um you know is just a shell of itself and um (laughs) we try to i mean we at our brewery we try to tell people to drink within um three weeks uh keep it cold and drink within three weeks uh but we also have the luxury of you know, um, handing people cans the day that we are canning um, and immediately putting them on for sale and stuff like that, too. So it's just like um, that's a much more difficult thing that, to do the, you know, the larger you get. You guys hit on something. Uh, Evan, you hit on it. You said oxygen. And, and remember, where, where there's life, there tends to not be oxidation, right? Have you ever been shocked over how good uh, barrel aged beer can taste, which in theory, should be massively oxidized. Um, yes. yes. And this is important because it looks like I'm broadcasting from inside of a barrel. Right. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, where there's life, there's no oxidation. So you have yeast. And back to the scanning electron micrograph of the lupulin. So you, there's probably a lot of, like, really complex, uh, you know, chemical reactions and biological reactions happening in a in a, in a canned hazy that we don't get the luxury of happening in a, in a canned, very clear filtered West coast style IPA. Cause we don't have the lupulin granules. We don't have the yeast. We don't have the schlarf. <laughs> we don't, no schlarf. Yeah. Yeah. No schlarf. <laughs> and I was going to add to that as well. It's like, yeah, if, if the yeast is happy and it's, it's continuing to yeah gobble up oxygen, do whatever it's doing. And then a lot of those beers are, are, are packaged young. Right. So like you said, some of the hot burn is dropping out, but there is this other element that I, I know to be true. And I don't necessarily understand all the chemistry of it. I mean, SO2 chemistry is well documented with lager yeast when you produce metabisulfite you scavenge oxygen until it's all gone. 
but we're talking about both yeasts and hops that there's a lot of sulfur, sulfur chemistry going on mm. and where, where that plays with the longevity of the product and flavor development. I think there's something there. Um, that's about all I can say about it, but I think, you know, those two things are what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because I know that we can go on on this topic forever and ever, I think that's a perfect point to to cap our conversation on IPAs. Also, Matt, I've decided during the, our first podcast that our um, our decision on the longevity of a podcast is when we all have to pee, which I know is right now. <laughs> and I'm like, I know that you guys are feeling like me. And I'm like, you know what? We covered the topic to the point where we have to use the restroom. End of episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could never cover all things IPA in one episode, anyway. So um, you know, stay tuned uh, for for future uh, uh, podcasts with Matt and I and and future guests. Um, but uh, Jeremy and Evan, uh, we we couldn't have asked for two more fun and two uh, more knowledgeable guests for our first uh, uh, podcast. I want to thank the you. bar has been set high. Oh, yeah, I mean, Jeremy, right. dude, Jeremy dropping knowledge. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jeremy's right. always incredible. <laughs> I, I can't wait to travel again so that we can uh, do this in person and also yes. uh, marinate in that aquarium of farts once again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the one part we don't miss, we almost kind of miss. It's we miss strange. it. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't miss the beer festival farts, man. I mean, that's just like yeah. you're just everybody. <laughs> That's why Matt's <laughs> festival's outdoors, you know. Yeah, you got to do it outdoors. <laughs> Don't sell too yeah. many tickets. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, well, thank you again, uh, Jeremy uh, from Lagunitas Brewery Company and uh, Evan from uh, Green Cheek uh, Beer Company. Um, check them out. Uh, two very knowledgeable, awesome uh, brewers. Matt, um, hey, good job on your first podcast hosting. Uh, well, I was just following your lead, man. well we've got more to come um on the uh beer before glory uh, podcast and we're going to have a lot of fun doing it talking about more topics in fact we're going to do a whole episode on hazy ipa which is part of the reason i sort of wrapped this up here because we can really dive into it and get some more experts on here to talk about that product that you love so much so with that we're going to take off out of here thank you for tuning in thank you for listening thanks to matt jeremy and evan uh for being here And Matt, we'll see you next time. Oh, man, I can't wait. Thanks, you guys. That was awesome. Well done. Take care of yourselves and your beer. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.